0: Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture reading today is from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. If you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. You can also find this uh, passage printed on page 13 of your worship guide. Remind reminds you that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Nathan. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That is the the single verse that we're going to focus on today and dig into. And if I could ask you to, Please imagine with me, think of maybe the most lavishly decorated event that you've ever attended or seen on TV, or maybe seen a repeat of it on TV or on YouTube or something like that. It may be a wedding or a championship sporting event or something along those lines where we often hear the line used, whoever put this on spared no expense. They went all out and spent untold amounts of money for this huge event in order to make it something that people would remember forever. They wanted to go down in the history books as a momentous occasion. So when I was trying to think of an event like this, something came to my mind um, that just happened a little over a month ago in England, in London, where England crowned, for the first time in 70 years, a new monarch. The event was the coronation ceremony for King Charles Third. And it's estimated to have a price tag of around $125 million. Some might say that England as a nation spared no expense for this ceremony. But is that true? Even though $125 million is by no means a small sum of money, and trust me, here at Proclamation, we would love to have just a fraction of that in order to buy our own building and maybe some land, but we are thankful that Crable. Uh, allows us to use their location but that there's a ceiling on that number there's a there's a cap there it isn't endless or priceless as we might hear other objects sometimes described as in fact even during that same coronation ceremony there's an object that is used that it has been used since the early 1300s the coronation chair, or the King Edward's chair, as it's known. That's been used in these ceremonies, the same ceremony, for 700 years. For those of you who don't want to do the mental math, that makes it about 450 years older than our country. If you tried to ask England if you could buy the coronation chair from them, they would laugh at you. This object is priceless because it's one of a kind, and there's no amount of money that anyone could offer England that they would say, Yeah, you got yourself a deal, got your new chair, it'll be in the mail tomorrow. That would never happen, because although it is made of wood and gold and a few other raw materials, the historical and sentimental value, the significance of this chair is irreplaceable. It truly cannot have a price tag put on it for them. Now, I use this example simply to draw the attention to the magnitude of the statement that Paul makes here in Romans 8.32. If a simple, finite object, this chair or the throne, look it up, it's really not that impressive if you look at it. It is a finite object that will one day, one day be destroyed. If this is that invaluable by monetary standards that a nation would not be willing to part with it, how much more valuable is the true one and only son of God himself. To describe his life as priceless doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of his worth. But this is what Paul is portraying to us, the beauty of God's grace in not sparing his own son, but giving us up, or giving him up for us all. Last week, and in verse 31, we saw how God is for his people. And he is for us. If he is for us, then who can be against us? No one. No one can be. No one is strong enough to overpower our God and take his people from him. But how do we know this? How do we know that God is truly for us always? How do we know that his love and his favor and his affection doesn't run dry for us when we doubt? or when we sin, or when we struggle through our pain and our suffering to see his goodness? How can we know for sure that even when it feels as though we're losing in the game of life, that his favor still rests upon us? That he will never leave us, nor forsake us, or turn his back on us? Now Paul answers these questions that might come up in anyone's minds who hears this verse and wanders down the path of pondering, is there, is there proof that God will always be for me? Well, in verse 32, we see an emphatic statement followed by a rhetorical question that is set forth as evidence or even better as absolute proof that is meant to destroy any inkling of doubt that might be in our minds that God is for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with, you, with him graciously give us all things? This is proof of God's love for his people. There's no greater extent to which God could have gone. What Paul wants us to see is that is the proof that God is truly a God of incredible love, and he fully expresses that, In giving up his only son. In this passage, we hear Paul speak with utter confidence. With a purpose of reassuring Christians that God has proven that that he is trustworthy by sending his one son. And because of this, we can fully trust that he will fulfill his other promises throughout time. Eventually leading to his people being in glory with him Forever, God did not hold back anything in giving Jesus Christ up. Neither will he hold back in the future for you, Christian. Take comfort in this truth. This is the ultimate goal of what Paul is proclaiming. Comfort and assurance that these things are in fact true. Paul says, look, God has already given up that which is infinitely valuable for you. There's no price tag that you can put On Jesus Christ, his one and only beloved son. It's a guarantee that you can take this promise to the bank. That he will one day, in glory, give you all that which is promised to you. Throughout scripture, if you are in him. In Christ. God is a God who keeps his promises. And we see that from the very beginning of history. And we will see this forever. He's incapable of lying. Even when we and in our, in our finite minds can't comprehend his works, they are good. This morning, we're going to focus on what Paul is conveying to us by looking at the verse in two sections. The argument here in the verse goes from the greater to the lesser. It starts with a focus purely on the action of God the Father, in not sparing his Son, but giving him up for us, and then it leads into what his people will receive because of that. We're going to think through each part of the verse and the characters mentioned in order to understand this truth better. And I pray that it will lead us to reverence and worship. First, we'll look at the statement that Paul makes in the beginning. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And then secondly, we'll look at the question that follows that statement. How will he not also with him give us all things? First, let's look at that statement. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. I'll be up front with you. A majority of what we're going to try to think through this morning has to do with this statement. Because if we can understand this, I believe it makes a world of difference in our lives. It grounds us in the hope of the gospel. It gives us peace. It gives us assurance of the great salvation that God bestows upon his people. If you see God for who he is here you will be blessed and comforted the statement that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up proclaims truths almost too grand for words too great for our finite minds to fully comprehend this depth of the declaration that paul makes here is vast if if we can't if we can simply get a grasp on this argument then question then the question that Paul follows up with afterward will flow in succession. If this makes sense, we will be able to see how it fits into the greater context of what many call the greatest, ch- the greatest chapter in all of Scripture in Romans 8. Verse 32 focuses on the action of God the Father more than anything as proof positive that Christians can trust him to keep his word and his promises. The truth that God the Father did not spare his own son, his beloved and only begotten son, cannot be overstated because it's the single greatest act in all of history. It is the fulcrum on which time teeters, even our calendar for us as human beings, B.C. before Christ and A.D. in the year of our Lord rests on it. The entirety of God's word focuses on it. To reveal to us the glories of our great creator. It encompasses the reason that we're here today. To worship a God who has revealed himself to us and called us to fear him, to love him, and to serve him. How we view that which is revealed in this one simple verse matters eternally. Not just for today, but forever. There's only two Possible responses to this statement that Paul makes. Amen, and praise God for his grace and his mercy. Or no, that's foolishness. I don't believe it. How you respond to what is stated is crucial. And I pray that after we seek to understand the argument that he's making, every one of us would be able to do nothing less than thank the Lord for his majestic mercy, love, and grace. The Apostle John said it this way. And many of us are familiar with this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Both of these verses clearly show that God the Father is not passive when it comes to the death of God the Son. It was God the Father who gave up God the Son to atone or to make up for the sins of his people. This makes the cross of Christ all the more unfathomable. And it also shows how Paul is not basing the arguments on feelings, but rather on the fact that God has acted definitively. The fact that God has already acted in this way that is incomprehensible to us shows and proves that he is ready and will act again for those who are redeemed by the blood of this Son. And Christians can take this promise to the bank and see that because of this, as you have heard many times throughout this series, you have no sin in your account, but it is full, overflowing with the righteousness of Christ Jesus. To get a clear picture of God the Father's grace in action, of offering up his only son, I think it is helpful to to think of another father mentioned in scripture, Father Abraham as many of you might know him. I encourage you to read Genesis chapter 22, either later today or this week, as you meditate on what God has done in sending his own son. This passage, recorded so early in human history, so clearly points to what is described here in Romans 8.32 that I don't truly know where to start. There are so many similarities if you see this story through the lens that shows us that God has been at work to redeem his people since the very beginning. It's a picture of what has come, of what was was to come, and how God was, even at that time, giving dimly lit glimpses of the coming Savior, his only Son, who he did not spare, but he gave up. In Genesis chapter 22, we have Abraham and Isaac, father and son. Abraham was an old man who had waited for an entire lifetime for a son to be born to him, who God had promised him years ago. Isaac was the one and only beloved son born of the promise, born of his wife, Sarah. Abraham had another son, Ishmael, who you can also read about, but he was not born of the promise of God, but rather born because they acted outside of God's exhortation. Isaac was the son who God had promised him. It says that God tested Abraham and said to him, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Friends, can you imagine this God telling you to take the son who you had longed for and prayed for. Take that child and sacrifice him and their life. But in the narrative, we see that without protest, Abraham takes Isaac. He puts the wood to offer the sacrifice on on to Isaac's back because Abraham was old at this point, and Isaac would have been much more fit to carry it. And they begin towards the Mount of Moriah, where Abraham was told to offer up Isaac. Now, Isaac didn't know the whole backstory, so as they were walking, he starts thinking to himself, and he says, "All right, we have the fire, we have the wood." But where is the lamb that we're supposed to offer as a burnt offering? And Abraham, his answer to him is one of faith. Even though he knows that he is to offer Isaac shortly as a burnt offering, he trusts that God will be true to his promise and that one day he would be the father of many through whom the world will be blessed. He trusts that God is good even though he can't understand it at that moment. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Even the statement that Abraham makes here points to what will be revealed in the future. God will provide for himself the burnt lamb for an offering. They get to where the offering is to be made and Abraham builds an altar. He lays the wood on it, and then he binds Isaac, and he lays him on the altar as well. Think of the emotion that had to be going on at this point. Abraham was probably shaking as he completed these tasks. Isaac had to be thoroughly confused, but he trusted his father, and instead of fighting or running, which he most certainly could have done since he was younger and more fit, He does what his father wishes willingly. Abraham pulls out the knife and holds it over Isaac to do as God had commanded him and slaughter his son. Then, all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord tells him, Stop. Don't lay a hand on him because I know that you fear God since you didn't withhold your son. Then, by God's providence, at that very moment, there's a ram caught in the thickets that is sacrificed in place of Isaac as a substitute. The reason I wanted to spend time looking at this Old Testament story is because I want us to see the similarities between the relationship between Abraham and Isaac and God the Father and God the Son. Think of the picture that this narrative in Genesis paints of what is described here in Romans 8.32. I imagine that the Apostle Paul was thinking of this story when he wrote the words in this verse. There's a similar story in history, but it ends differently. And that is what Paul is basing his argument on here. On the Mount of Moriah, the son, Isaac, was spared from death by the angel of the Lord. Now, when we read throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament in particular, we hear the name the angel of the Lord multiple times, and it's described to describe someone, and you notice a few things that you don't notice about ordinary angels as you read about him, because he is no ordinary angel. The angel of the Lord identifies himself as God, as he speaks as God, even here in this passage. And he, unlike other beings, other angels who are created, he accepts worship. He doesn't stop individuals from worshiping him. Whereas other angels always point whoever is bowing to them or trying to worship them, and direct, they, they try to direct their attention to the true and living God, not to them. This tells us that the angel of the Lord is in fact none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the own son who Paul is referring to when he says that God the Father did not spare him here in verse 32. Now, think about that. Did you catch the kicker in Genesis 22? It's Jesus, the true Son of God, who, not very far from this very spot that they're standing, would carry the wood on his back in a few hundred years. He is the one who stops the sacrifice from happening. The spotless lamb of God who willingly went to the cross for the sins of his people. Just like Isaac, he didn't open his mouth or fight back, but voluntarily trusted in the will of his father. But, unlike Isaac, Jesus was the one who God the Father did not spare. In fact, God the Father poured out the fullness of his wrath on Christ He was the only sacrifice that could truly atone for our sins. You see, if Isaac was sacrificed, his blood wouldn't have atoned for anyone, because he too had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. His blood couldn't cover over himself, let alone you or I, thousands of years later. But Jesus is different. He is no ordinary man, and that's what Paul is getting at here. Jesus never knew sin. Although he was tempted in every way, he lived without sin. It was because of this that the eternal, in the eternal counsel of God that Jesus would be, as Peter said in Acts 2, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And he would be crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. Yes, he was crucified And killed at the hands of lawless men. But it was not men who killed Jesus. These men were simply acting as God's instruments in God's plan of redemption. We can acknowledge that they acted sinfully, but they were actually fulfilling the plan of God. The man, Jesus of Nazareth, that they were crucifying, was no ordinary man. He was the very image of the, visible, of the invisible God and of one substance with God the Father. He was God in human flesh. Men are not strong enough to kill the God who created them and gave them breath. It was God the Father who gave up and crushed his only son for us. It was God, the Father, who did not spare his Son for us. But some might object to this or bring up the question, how can a father be good if they don't hold back the fullness of their anger or wrath when they're punishing their child? This sounds like the opposite of good. If a human father doesn't restrain themselves, they would most certainly greatly harm a young child. But we can't think of this in human terms. That's what makes God all the more glorious. He, the Father, is not punishing his son for his son's actions. His son was sinless. Jesus' life did not warrant anything but blessing because he fully kept the law of God, which we as mere humans cannot do. But It had been foreordained that God the Son would be made sin, and God's righteous wrath against sin would be poured out on him. This was to fulfill his plan and bring forgiveness and life to many before the very foundation of the world. So, before anyone gets the wrong idea of this, this is not cosmic child abuse, as as some have labeled it. Some who refuse to fully think through the depth of biblical revelation use this term in order to say that God the Father was the one who gave up God the Son to death and that they were at odds with each other because of it. This couldn't be further from the truth. Throughout his earthly ministry, we see Jesus making statements such as, I and the Father are one in John 10, or, If you know me, you will also know the father from john 14:7 or no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him from matthew 11:27 in these proclamations jesus was letting humankind know that he was in fact the messiah who had been promised he was god in the flesh sent to redeem a fallen And sinful world. This is the very reason that the religious leaders of that day wanted to kill him. He was claiming to be God and to them that was heresy and it didn't fit within their narrative. They wanted an earthly king who would once again set up his kingdom so that they could live lavishly. Their rejection of Jesus was not based on evidence. All of the evidence in fact pointed directly to what Jesus was saying as being absolute truth. Their rejection was based on pride and arrogance. They were suppressing the truth, and this is the very same reason that those who reject Jesus now continue to turn their back on him. Oh, that God would open their eyes to see the glory of what he has done. This man that they wanted to kill was the true son of the living God. Who had come to this earth to usher in the true kingdom of God. Which is a kingdom that lasts forever. He was here on a mission. Sent by his father to bear the wrath of God against sin for his people. The subjects of his true kingdom that is not of this world. He would do this by being despised, rejected, smitten by God and afflicted, as Isaiah 53 puts it. Speaking of Jesus, as Troy said earlier. He would be pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Because we, like sheep, had gone astray. Because we sin and declare that our own way is greater than God's the Lord would lay on him the iniquity of us all. God the Son is made sin and a curse on the tree, on the cross, on a piece of wood that he carried on his own back, knowing full well what was about to happen. Our sins, our iniquities and unrighteousness were laid on him, and the wrath of God towards sin is fully expelled on him as our substitute. He was the ram caught in the thickets. The lamb of God provided, that that God provided for himself, as Abraham put it. Sacrificed as a substitute in the place for sinners. Isaiah 53 also tells us that it pleased God to crush him. It didn't please God in a way that means that God the Father enjoyed this. But rather, his wrath against sin was appeased by the Son willingly laying down his life in the place of his saints. Friends, this is the good news that the world was waiting for. God the Father gave up his Son, and God the Son willingly laid down his life for his people while they were his enemies. One pastor said, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy. But the Father for love. This is Paul's line of reasoning to prove that God does, in fact, love his people. And there is no greater argument than this. No event in history has ever been more costly than the death of God himself. Because God the Father didn't spare his own son, we can be spared the wrath that we were due for our sins. This is is what Paul clearly has in mind when he is penning this verse. Now, we looked at what it meant that God didn't spare his own son, but who is Paul speaking of when he writes that he gave him up for us all here? Who did God give his one and only son up for? Is it everyone who ever lived? Is it only the people in Rome that Paul is writing to? Is it you? Is it me? To understand who he's writing about when using this statement, us all, here in this verse, we can look back to the previous verse and also to the previous section in Romans 8 for greater context. In verse 31, Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? The us all here in verse 32 is the same group of people that he called us in verse 31. Who God is for. It harkens back to the previous section Because this is a continuous thought from Paul. It is those who God foreknew, those that he predestined, and those that he called, and those that he glorified. Paul makes this statement in the affirmative, in the positive. He gave him up for us all in order to to add more emphasis and to strengthen the argument. As if the argument isn't already strong enough because he just told us how God didn't spare the most precious thing in all of history, his own son. But Paul's goal is that those who are in Christ, those who trust the promises of God, would find great comfort in this fact. The fact that God the Father gave up his son for his people. Sons of Abraham, sons of the promise that God had made. These are the people God's beloved adopted children, foreknown, predestined, called, and glorified through the work of Jesus. They have been brought into a right relationship with their Heavenly Father, and if this includes you, then His Spirit attests that this is true of you as well. The wording here seems to point to the collective and full group of all saints who have trusted in Christ throughout the years. The Old Testament saints, like Abraham and Isaac, who trusted in the promise of the coming Messiah, and the New Testament saints, who trust in the finished work of that Messiah, Jesus Christ. It should also make us think, though, individually, because the Spirit of God bears witness to these truths individually in our own minds and souls. He shines the light of the fact that we were once sinners, rebels, alienated from this God. But even though that is true, Christ died for us. If you believe that God the Father gave his only son for you, then this applies directly to you. This magnificent truth is yours and you can lay claim to it through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's not even everything that Paul says in this short verse. So finally we'll approach the question that Paul asks. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now remember, Paul is not asking this question to get an answer from the hearer or the reader, but rather he's using it as a statement. This question is purely rhetorical and he wants us to understand that since all of this, all of that which was stated previously is true, this is a guarantee. He finishes this statement in verse 32 with a rhetorical question that points us to the truth that because God has already given up Everything, that which is priceless for his people, he will now give us everything along with Christ. God could not offer anything more priceless and precious than his one and only Son, the true Son. Because this is true, God will surely give us all things. Now, you might, like me, when you read this, wonder what all things actually means. And scholars seem to disagree on this a bit, but some say, It refers to only eschatological or future blessings that will be revealed at Christ's second coming. But others argue that although future blessings are definitely in view, it can also include the good gifts that God has given us now. Personally, I lean towards the second view because I believe it lines up with the broader context of Paul encouraging believers to persevere or to remember that you are being preserved by a great And gracious Heavenly Father. This God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And at the same time, He is working all things out for our good. Because of what Christ has done, you already have access and you are continuing to receive every spiritual blessing. Paul speaks in verse 30 about the saints' glorification, the final benefit of our redemption that has not physically happened to us yet from our standpoint, but he speaks of this as a completed work from God's standpoint. This is the key to understanding these truths as well, that we need to see them from the perspective of a sovereign God who does not waver and is not restrained by time as we are. He is in fact, as verse 28 says in Romans Romans 8, already working things out for your good, whether you can see it or not. You can believe this truth because he has already given Christ for you. This is the logical progression that Paul lays out through this verse. God gives us great gifts in this life. Family, friends, his word, his church, our jobs, and so many other things are good gifts. And James said that every good gift and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change he is a great and loving god who cares for his people not only in the future but also right now in our current situations john flavel the english puritan put it this way when speaking of this verse and this is a long somewhat difficult quote so you have to pay attention But it says so much, in and I think it is so helpful. Here it is. How is it imaginable that God would withhold after this spirituals or temporals from his people? How shall he not call them affectionately, justify them freely, sanctify them thoroughly, and glorify them eternally? How shall he not clothe them, feed them, protect them, and deliver them? Surely... If he would not spare his own son, one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one one circumstance of misery, it can never be imagined that ever he should, after this, deny or withhold from his people, for whose sakes all this was suffered, any mercies, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. The same God who spared not his own son, but gave him up for us, gave us all things in Christ. He is for you and he cares for you now and forever. He will only do what is good for you. If you are one who struggles to understand how God is at work in the midst of trials and tribulations in your life, if at times you can't see That God is still working all things out for your good. You're not alone. This verse is to assure us that he is at work and that work will benefit you even when we can't understand the things of God because they're too lofty for our finite minds. If you have a hard time understanding how God could love you, look no further. He didn't spare his son for you. If you're feeling as though you're Losing the war to sin or having doubts that God has time for you, run to the son that he didn't spare. If you're struggling with depression, anxiety, or loneliness, run to the greatest friend that you have, the only son who God didn't spare but willingly gave him up for you. This is is the truth that Paul wants to drive home and to solidify to these Christians in Rome and the truth that we most certainly can still benefit from now and forever. The greatest gift that God gave was his son for us on the cross. His grace both saves us and keeps us now at, for a Christian, but the ultimate gift that we will receive At a future time, upon death or when Christ returns, is Jesus Christ himself. He is the greatest gift that we have already received and the greatest gift we will ever receive from the giver of good gifts, our Heavenly Father. One day, we will be with him forever. And at that moment, all things will have been worked out for your good because God was for you. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 2.9, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. No more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more sin. You won't even be able to sin. And that's only what we know of it. The beauty of being in God's presence forever is something else that we cannot fully comprehend yet. But one day, we will fully taste and see how the Lord is good. All because the Father did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us. Amen.